Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you care for us and that you want to reveal your love to us and, and share with us. We just thank you for all that you've done. We ask you to guide and lead us in this study in your son's name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 21, starting at verse 11. And he has given it to be furbished that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened and is furbished to give into the hand of the slayer. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Tears by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon your thigh. Because it is a trial, and what if the sword condemn even the rod? It shall be no more, says the Lord God. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and smite your hands together and let the sword be doubled the third time. The sword of the slain, it is the sword of the great men that the, uh, and the slain which entered into their privy chambers. I have set the point of the sword against their gates and their heart, that their heart may faint and their ruins be multiplied. Ah, it is made bright. It is wrapped up for the slaughter. Go you one way or the other, either to the right hand or to the left, whithersoever your face is set, and I will smite my hands together, and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have said it. So we're continuing this picture of God having drawn out the sword in judgment. And we started last week. And he says, I, he have given it to be furbished, and remember that means to be polished, and, and, uh, and that it may be handled. The sword is sharpened and polished, to give it into the hand of the slayer. So this is a sword that God has hewn and sharpened to a fine edge. And <clears throat> one thing about swords, you can have multiple swords. Most people, when they buy swords in our day, end up with what's called a blunted sword with no edge to it. Uh, not that it can't, you know, not that it can't cut or do damage, but it's blunted. It's, it's not going to cut the way a fine uh, filed sword will do and it says this sword has been sharpened and polished it is ready for battle it is ready for use and God says he has sharpened it and the word of God it tells us in the New Testament is sharper than any two-edged blade separating between the uh, the joint and the marrow the soul and the spirit it cuts a very fine edge and this is God's sword and as and if you're familiar with any kind of knife or anything, in restaurants I love to have sharp knives. Now a sharp knife will cut really easy, but even if you get cut with a sharp knife, it's not as bad as being the skin being ripped by an unsharp knife. And when God uses his knife, it is with precision accuracy. He's, he's doing surgery. He's, he's basically doing surgery when he's doing this. He's cutting out the evil. And this is what he says he's going to do. He's going to be, huh? Well, it, it's going to be wide because, as a, as a sword is, but it's going to be. It is more specific. It's not just in general. And and people who can use a sword are able to do just that. They can be very specific on where they strike their sword. Uh, I took fencing one time, and fencing was quite an interesting sport because. It's very precise. You're not swinging it all over the place trying to, it is very, you know, you, matter of fact, you've got to keep it within a certain distance or you've committed a foul. If you go more than about a foot outside of your body, 
you've committed a, an error on the on the fencing. And you know, it's kind of funny when you watch some of these people on these TV shows and they're swinging their sword every every direction, cutting. You know, you better not be a friend of theirs because you're, if you're anywhere near them, you're going to get hurt as well. And but this is a precision. God's using it in a very precise way, and He sharpened it for just that reason. So, and it says, because it is a trial, and what if the sword contemned even the rod, it shall be no more. God says it is a trial. And we've talked about how trials prove our love for God and our understanding of him and our, what we believe. Everything we go through with God is going to be tried. Do I believe what he has taught me? Do, am I going to trust him? And it says that it condemns or despises the rod. I mean, God, when, you, when God comes in with his trials, have you ever felt like you've been despised? God doesn't love you anymore. You, you know, we've all been there at some point. Well, God, you must not love me. You've lost, you've lost all your control, God. How can you let this be going on in my life? And this is something that we need to be able to understand. God has a plan. He has a reason. And we need to just rest rest in his plan even when it's sharp and it's cutting there's things in our life he wants to cut out of our life and sometimes it hurts to have those things cut out because God's saying you don't need this and a lot of times we are very much in love with what God wants to get rid of our in our life you know God I really like this don't don't ask me to get rid of this don't ask me to get have this I know you say it's a sin but I, I don't think it's that big a deal and we've done that with God probably many times in our lifetime. God, it's really not that important. It's not that big a sin. Which is why I always go back into Proverbs when it says these seven things God hates. And always on the top of those list is lying tongues and gossip. And you know, as humans, those are things that we kind of go, well, those aren't, in, those aren't even a real big deal. I didn't steal from somebody. I, I didn't physically hurt them. I didn't, you know, I didn't murder them. And yet God puts at the very top of his list lying and gossip and I and I said I believe this is because it hurts people at the soul and it's one thing to hurt somebody physically and it's a whole nother thing to hurt them at the at the soul level where they're going to feel that pain for a long period of time and we use the example all of us probably have something that a parent or some adult has said to us when we were a young child that still hurts when we think about it You'll never amount to anything. How can you be so stupid? You know, how come you're not like this, you know, your brother, sister, cousin, aunt, you know, whoever it might be. Uh, you know, you'll never be successful. You know, all these different things that they, they, that were said to us in the moment of anger, but yet they hurt very deep and people have been struggling with them for the rest of their lives. And we want to be very careful with our tongue. Our tongue can hurt and damage people in a very strong way. And it can also build up and edify people. But being of the flesh, we are very good at tearing people down and making them feel very little and very small. And it goes, it is no more, saith the Lord. God says, the, when he judges, it comes in a very harsh way. When he judged the people in the time of Noah, Noah and his family were the only ones that survived. When he judged the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, one town survived, and that's the one that Lot said, can we stay there for the night because we can't make it all the way out. And he says, it's just a little town. And we talked a long time about this, just a little town. Just a little sin, God. 
and he spared it just because of that request. And we're going to see in the end times when God brings judgment, takes the church out and brings judgment upon the world. You know, two-thirds of the population will be dead by the time the, the judgments are done. And those are just what we're told die. And so we see when God moves, he moves harshly. When he judges his people, he sent his people into captivity. And everybody suffered during that captivity. You think about Daniel. He had to go into captivity. You have uh, Ezekiel going into captivity. We see all these people, they suffered because of the judgment that God moves. And when God moves in judgment, even the righteous will suffer because there is sin in their life as well that needs to be brought out. And it says, verse 14, there, You, therefore, son of man, prophesy and smite your hands together and the sword, and let the sword be doubled the third time and the sword of the slain. It is the sword of the great men of the, that are slain which enters into their privy chambers or their, their enclosed private areas. So he says, clap your hands and it's going to get worse. God told him right from the beginning, it's not going to, the sword I'm taking out is not going to be put away until he was done with the use of it. Have you ever been in a place where God is bringing judgment upon your life and it seems like, okay, God, any time now you can stop. I think I've learned my lesson and God keeps going keeps going and I've shared with you I've watched people who have attacked pastors and attacked God's children and then the judgment falls upon them and I go God how you know how bad is and he go and and, it, and he's going and then always saying well they did damage to my child they're going to take the full brunt of the punishment just as any man will do if somebody hurts their family it's it's not uncommon for a man to go crazy if if this family is seriously hurt and go beyond probably what is even necessarily just because he's restoring his family and taking care of his family and God does the same thing. He goes to very strong punishments when he moves. Now he's very slow to his anger and he's very slow to move but once he moves, beware. And you don't want to be the target of that action. So we need to learn to be swift in our repentance and swift in our confession of our sins to God so that we have short accounts and God says you're covered it's not going to be there and we look at the children of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness every time they would speak out and murmur against God or against Moses something bad would happen one time one time they had the earthquake that earth swallowed up uh, the the rebellious people and other times snakes were unleashed into the camp and would bite people and they would die unless they looked up at the bronze serpent in faith. Uh, we see over and over how God sent judgment. After they're in the promised land the people would do what was right in their own eyes and they would be conquered for a period of time, put in, made a vassal of some other people and have to give tribute until they would finally repent and turn to God. And then they would be okay for a while and then they would go into rebellion and go through the cycle all over again. And God says, I am got a volatile weapon here and it's going to be coming out. Verse 15 says, I have set the point of the sword against all their gates and their heart that their heart may faint and their ruins be multiplied. Ah, it is made bright, it is wrapped for the slaughter. 
the point of the sword is set up against each person that deserves the attack. And it says it's put in, that their heart may faint. Their very innermost being will collapse. Yeah, and this is what God wants it. He wants our flesh to be totally broken. No flesh is going to stand before God. Our righteousness is not going to stand before God. And he will do whatever it takes to make us turn to him in repentance. Because he is not going to let us say, God, look at all the good that I have done. That doesn't fly with him. It's, God, thank you for letting me be used by you. God, thank you for letting me see you work through me. That's where our rewards come from. That's the righteousness that will be held up by God when he works through us. Because some people have an easier time than others serving God in various areas. We've been doing a lot of study on, on how to witness. There are some people that are, are very bombastic and loud and able to outgoing. They're going to have no problem with any of the assignments that we do for witnessing. Other people are very quiet and reserved. For them, just talking to somebody is a trick, much less talking to them about God. And so it's not what we can do in our flesh. Neither side of those is going to be rewarded. It's what God does through us and how he wants to work through us. And it says that they may faint and that their ruins, their stumbling blocks may be multiplied. Have you ever noticed how God puts stumbling blocks in front of you when you don't want to serve him? He, he makes it difficult to not serve him. Well, the devil will do it too when you're trying to follow God. So you get a whole path of stumbling blocks, which is why we need God's word so that we can see the stumbling blocks and you're not walking blindly into them. Uh, one of the things when you walk at night, you know, trying to get up and go to the bathroom or whatever, you, you know, anything that's out of place and you kick your toe against or you fall over or you, you get an animal sleep in the middle of the walkway, you know, it's uh, stumbling blocks. But right. God puts those stumbling blocks to keep us from going into sin, and Satan will try to put the stumbling blocks in front of us to keep us from doing the right. But he says, it is made bright, it is wrapped up for slaughter. The sword is there to bring the destruction. And God is ready to destroy us, if destroy our flesh, because it is to be crucified. And that's what we've talked about in, in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. And we are to be crucified, and he's going to make sure that our flesh is crucified one way or the other. We can voluntarily let it happen, or he can make it happen. And it hurts more to have it made happen because you're not trying to, you're trying not hard not to have it happen in those cases, and God's going to say it's going to happen eventually. Now, one thing I've learned about God is he gets his way. He will eventually get his way, and whether it's us voluntarily giving it to him or him making enough problems for us that we finally give in and do it anyway. So over the years, I've tried to get better at just saying, God, I, I'm going to let you have your way. Still not really good at it necessarily, but I'm getting better at the idea of letting God have his way. Verse 16 says, Go you in one way or the other, either to the right hand or to the left, whether whether." So ever your face is set, I will also smite my hands together and I will cause my fury to rest. The, I, the Lord, have said it. So God says, you're going to move around back and forth, going, going to each side. You're going to work on making things happen. He goes, there is a point 
where he's going to stop and rest. When he has accomplished what it is that he desires to accomplish, he will rest. And when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, telestai, it is paid for, sins were paid for, he had finished what God the Father had called him to do, and it said he rested. He gave up his spirit, and he's been at rest since. Jesus is not up there fighting and struggling. He is at rest, sitting at the Father's right hand, and watching, watching the plan in place. And you know, to me it's so amazing that the plan for God is for, to use us crazy humans to try to, to, to spread the gospel. Uh, I, I can't even imagine what that would be you know, like you know, from the heavenly side of things. Can you imagine from the heavenlies, you know, uh, the angels looking down, God, why are you using those weak, weak individuals who can't do anything right? They can't even speak right, you know, your message that you've given them and you're using them. And yet God's purpose is to use us to go forward with the gospel message. Pretty amazing sometimes when you really think about how we are used. That he keeps us on this world for us to open up our mouth and share the gospel with people. And, you know, it's very humbling. Now, because you figure God could send angels down here to do it. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, he's going to have an angel that flies around the heavens declaring the gospel in the end days so that nobody will be without excuse. But his choice of use is to use imperfect human beings to give the gospel message. And it says, eventually, he'll, the enough of the sword, he will clap his hands together and will cause his fury, his anger, the hot anger to rest and it says I the Lord have spoken it and it is fun to watch when God stops <laughs> when God stops the judgment in your life and, he, and things get back into a even keel God I finally confess I surrender and God stops and there's rest not just for him but for us when he stops and allows this rest to happen so we see the sword coming against the, the people. Verse 18, the word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, Also you, son of man, appoint you two ways, that the sword of the king of Babylon may come. Both twain shall come forth out of one land, and choose you a place. Choose it at the head of the way of the city. Appoint a way that the sword may, become, may come to Rabath of the Amorites, and to Judah in Jerusalem be defended. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the head of the two ways to use divination. He made his arrows bright. He consulted with images. He looked into the deliver. At his right hand was the divination for Jerusalem to appoint captains to open up the mouth of the slaughter and lift up the voice with shouting to appoint a battering rams against the gates and to cast up a mount to build a fort. And it shall be then as a false divination in their sight to them that have sworn oaths that he will call to remembrance the iniquity that, of what may be taken. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are discovered, so that all your doings, your sins do appear, because I say that you are come to remembrance, ye shall be taken with the land, and you profane wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, when iniquity shall have an end. So we see God talking about judgment coming. All right, and we've been talking about this. 
Babylon has already taken at least one, if not two, waves of captives out of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are back on their way down the path. Now, if you've studied history, part of the problem was that Babylon was busy fighting Egypt. And Israel just happened to sit <laughs> between the two nations. And if they had just sat there and been nice and been obedient, they probably would never have had many, many problems. But the kings of Israel kept rebelling and trying to join Egypt or just plain out rebelling and caused trouble between both sides and have both sides attacking them at various points in time. And if they had just sat and done what God had said, they would have been mostly left alone. But they were disobedient. And they are going to receive that judgment. He goes, verse 19, Also you son of man, appoint the two ways that the sword of the king of Babylon may come. Both twain shall be, he choose a place that it choose the way of the city. So Nebuchadnezzar had a choice when he's marching his armies from Babylon southwest. He could go around by the coast. He could go to the east of Jordan or he could go through Israel. So he actually had three ways to choose. But all three were major highways of the day. Now the, the Mediterranean probably was the long way, but it would have led to Egypt. The going to the east of the Jordan is the really long way because then he's got to cross a desert at the bottom part of Israel. So it's either really the choice of the Mediterranean or through, Egypt, uh, through Israel. And it says, you know, appoint the way, one that he would go through Rabath and the Amorites and the other one through Judah and Jerusalem. God, you've got a choice. We're going to say that the king has a choice. How is he, how is he going to march his army into battle? And it ended up that he went through Jerusalem, mostly because of the disobedience of the kings and because of the sin of the people. When you come right down to the bottom line, the people have been sinning. And God has said, I've had enough. I've had enough of your sin, your idolatry, all of the... All the things that you're doing wrong, I've had enough of it. And judgment falls. And this is even happening in our day and age. We're watching countries that have been Christian countries for, you know, for a long time that are now starting to fall and be judged because of the sin as they get further and further from God. Our country gets further and further from God's standard every, every decade, every year. And this country will be judged eventually for its sin. How long? I don't know. A lot sooner than we probably want it to be. And we'll see great judgment fall. And see what God has in store. When judgment falls, it's never very pretty. But it's, judgment is designed to draw and drive people back to God. Because when things get bad, people usually respond either to get worse in their sin or they go turn to God. After 9-11, the churches saw a great increase from people saying, well, we, we need to look at this God. You know, we, we just had a terrible thing. How could this happen? And they would flock into churches. Didn't last long. But when bad things happen, one of two things happen. You get driven away from God or you get driven to God. And God will allow what we would call bad things to draw people to him. The book of Revelation is all about that. 21 judgments that are designed to draw people to God and judge, but 
the reason for the judgment is to push people to come back to God. And we see here it says, a point away, the king of Babylon stood at the parting and he away and he used divination to, and his arrows were bright and he consulted images and looked to, to the liver. Kind of a messy sounding thing, but he had these arrows, you know, he's using them as sticks, pointers, you know. I don't know if he flipped them in the air and saw which way they pointed or what it might be. But then it says he looked to the liver. And we've talked about this in various places in the, in the scriptures. The liver, the largest organ in the lower part of the body, and they, and they considered it the seat of the emotions is in the liver. We would say from the bottom of our heart or from the pit of our stomach or the pit of our gut, you know, they, they use the word liver in the same way that we would use those terms. I believe so. It's all in that general area, depending on, it's all in that area where the churning of your decision, you know, uh, you know when you make a, when, you, when you're guilty, there's usually the churning in your gut. Is your, uh, if you're in deep in love, it's usually that area that is all twisted up and tied up and not. So almost everybody has used that area as the seat of the emotions, whether, whether they use the stomach, the heart, the, the liver, the guts, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the, the thing is, it's all that same thing. So don't, when you see something like this, don't, don't take it so literally, like, why are, they, why, are they, why are they talking about the liver? No, they're talking about he looked deep within the innermost being of who he was. Which way should we go? You know, who do I want to take first? You know, basically that's exactly what he was saying. He was going to take both of them, but it's like, which one first? And he used what they call divination and casting of the lots, you know, and what, I never found any real good idea of what the arrow was supposed to represent. You know, maybe he spun it, on, you know, spun it as a pointer and said, "Which way should I go?" You know, you know, that any number of ways that that could have been used. Um, most most of divination is, you know, some element of luck, and then, okay, God, you you direct the luck in the way you want it to to go. Yeah, flip a coin, you know, uh, draw draw a card from the from the deck, you know. Uh, Throw, throw three dice and, you know, whatever combination, you know, is, is the way to go. You know, and then that's it's stuff that's been used forever. Churches have done it, too, you know, over time. You know, they do, you know, when the disciples were trying to choose uh, the next uh, disciple to replace uh, Judas Iscariot, they go, okay, we've got uh, Matthias, and I can't remember the other guy's name, but we got these two candidates, God, and we're going to, we're going to flip a coin, and you, you tell us, you know, by the flipping of the coin, which one is supposed to be. And the coin flip went to Matthias, but God wanted Saul of Tarsus. So, you know, they didn't even have the right candidates in the mix to, for, for, the, for the action to go into. And a lot of times, that's exactly what happens to us. God, which way do you want me to go? Do you want me to go this way, or do you want me to go that way? And God goes, I want you to go straight. Well, God, that's not the way I wanted, to, you know, that's not one of the choices I wanted to make. God goes, that's the way I want you to go. And we do this quite frequently with God. Now, how many times have we prayed for, for something? God, I want you to do such and such, and, and, and I think you should do it this way. Uh, God, I, I need to pay these bills, and I really think you should let me win the lottery to do it. You know, so I'm looking to win the lottery this week. You know, and, and God's going, no, I have other plans for you. I have other plans for you. Well, most, most people are never going to win the lottery because of God, an answer to prayer, <laughs> because that's not normally God's way of doing it. Now, if they have some big thing and they're going to give all the money to the church, maybe God might have let that happen. But I, I don't think that's the way he's going to meet the needs usually. 
not to limit God. He can do whatever he wants, but that's not, you know, that's a human way of doing it. That's a human way of you know, trying to do it. I don't see him use, doing it that way, but he'd use the money if it was given. If it's a human way of accomplishing it, then it's probably not God's way of doing it. So we have this image of Babylon, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, trying to figure out where to go. And it says that he's going to give false divination to them because of the iniquity of his people, of God's people. He says, the iniquity is such that I am bringing him here to be your judge. And God will always judge iniquity. Eventually, he judges it. In the New Testament, he says, be sure your sin will find you out and it will be shouted from the housetops. If you don't deal with your sin, God will deal with your sin and make sure people know about it. Because he is not going to let his children get away with sin. And we see it, we've seen it over and over again with evangelists quite often who get into uh, adulterous affairs and it comes out eventually and, and it gets broadcast to millions of people. And God gets glory in the long run, but it embarrasses the people involved in it drastically. Why? Because they didn't confess and repent. God wants us to confess our sin and repent to him. And when we do that, it's put under the blood of Christ, and God says it's covered. You don't have to worry about it being exposed unless you keep living in that sin. If he, God, I repent and, and confess it, and you still live in it. You really haven't repented, and God will, will bring it back out to be revealed. But we see this, that God is very much going to discipline sin because he hates it so much. It's so opposite of who he is that he must deal with sin because that is who he is his righteousness demands that it be dealt with when people reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior then they are choosing to be judged according to their sin that Jesus paid for and they'll be sent to hell because they rejected Jesus and his forgiveness and they'll be punished for all the wrong that they've done because they refuse to accept the gift we have this great blessing in the gift of Christ's sacrifice. And it's a gift of grace. You know, we really need to fully start understanding grace in a better, stronger way. God gives us his forgiveness because he desires to. Not because I deserve it. Because I don't. Not because I've done anything good because I haven't. God just gives grace. Oh, the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me. <laughs> I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see, as the song goes. I was blind. I was not able to make a choice for God. I'm not able to do anything for God without his grace. I can't even come to him without his grace. And I'm definitely not going to heaven without his grace because of how much he loves me. He gives me grace. And you know what? He loves every single human being that has ever existed on this world. Enough to offer them the same grace he offers us. And we need to be able to show grace to people. You know, and usually when you tell people you need to show people grace, well, they don't deserve it. Of course they don't deserve it. If they did, it wouldn't be grace. We show them grace. We give them God's love. We, sh we just open up. We love him because he first loved us.
we're able to give grace back to people because he gives us grace. And the more we see the specialness of that gift, the more we're going to desire to give it to other people. Because we're going to look at them and say, wow, this person's a really bad sinner. They need grace. You know, they're a really terrible person. They need God's grace. Because we're all terrible people. You know, the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day were terrible people. They just didn't recognize it. Jesus kept going after them because of their hypocrisy and their actions. You're saying one thing and doing something else. You're doing these half-hearted attempts to show people that you're righteous, but you're really not. Your heart's not in it. And they could, their hearts couldn't be in it because it was all done in the flesh. And Jesus says, you need to accept me. You need to have the Spirit do the work. And this is what he's looking for us. Are we willing to let him work through us? It's easier said than done. It really is easier said than done. God, I want you to use me. And God says, well, I want you to go talk to that person. Oh, no, God, not that person. You know, well, I want you to do this. Oh, no, God, not that. I want to do something, I want to do something big. You know, a lot of times we, God says, I want you to do something small, and we don't want to even start the small. Just give this person a cup of water. Oh, no, God, they're, they're, they're smelly and, and stinky. They haven't had a bath in a month. Uh, you know, the flies, are, the flies are dying around them. They smell so bad. And you want me to give them water? And God's saying yes. Yeah. And nobody's really usually that bad. But you know, you know, we do that kind of stuff with them all the time. God says, go do this. And we're going, no, anything but that God. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to do that. We will draw back from what God is trying to get us to do. And we need to learn, all of us, myself included, need to learn just to be soft and tender with what God says and say, I am going to do what you've asked me to do, God. And learn to listen. Learn to listen. The hardest thing to do is to listen to God because he usually speaks in a very small voice. And if I am so busy doing the, doing the things that I want to do, I will ignore his, verse, his voice most of the time. I won't even, not even ignore it, I won't even hear it because I'm so busy doing what I want to do. And this is why we open our day with prayer. We open our day in the word and we go, God, I need your direction. And we start listening for his direction. And then we get obedient. And you know, when you're being obedient to God, a lot of times even other Christians might laugh at you like, what are you doing? Why, why are you talking to that person? How can, how can you be hanging out with that person? Because God said to. God told me to. I really think that God told me to share the gospel with this person, so here I am. I'm going to do what God has shared with me to do. And I'm going to minister to those that God has shared, told me to minister to. And we see all these things about how God can do things. When we were watching the movie God's Not Dead and the pastor could never get his car started because God had other things for him to do for those first two days or three days, whatever, whatever period of time it was. You know, he kept wanting to go on his vacation and God wouldn't let the car start because he had to minister to each of these individuals and he was thinking he was you know, wasting his time and, and not doing anything important in life. We all do that, though, most of the time. We don't recognize that the little thing, things that God has us do are extremely important to the kingdom of heaven. The time that we just give somebody the cup of water, we give them the, the burger or take them out to dinner, or we just say a kind word to them. 
we don't really understand sometimes how that one word might be all that it took to change their whole week possibly. And if you think about it, most of us have had that experience where somebody has just said just the right thing that changed our outlook for, for the day or even for longer than a day. Just a little word, but for us, it was like getting a gold piece, you know, that somebody just said, you know, I just enjoy seeing your smiling face, you know, especially when you're feeling bad and you don't even think you're smiling. And it just can change the way you think for the rest of the day. And that person is not really thinking they did anything. You got this nugget of gold in your life that changed your whole day. And I mean, and we you know, think about just, you know, think about in your life, you know, those times when somebody has just done or said something that was just the right thing to change your outlook. Maybe for the rest of the week, you know, but especially just for a couple hours or a day. We never know the little things that we do that are going to touch people's lives. And it may just be their faithfulness in our serving of God that somebody's watching us and saying, well, that person really is a Christian. That, that, I like that. You know? And it changes their mindset toward God a little bit. Maybe they even get saved later on because of it. We don't know what we're doing that's going to affect us. We don't know what little gift we make to missionaries that will totally change their life. And we never thought anything of it. And I've shared with you the, the peanut butter going to Finland, you know, the change, it was the greatest gift in the whole container was the little inexpensive case of t peanut butter. And yet that was what the missionaries loved because it was, it was something they never did, never got. So we never know the little things that we do, the little kindnesses we show, the time you give a smile to a young child and, and a pat on the head and just give them encouragement. Maybe just what that child needs to change their life. We don't know. We don't know the impact of our words and our actions on people until long after the fact. And we're always looking at, oh God, you know, God, I haven't done anything really big or kind. And then those are the times when God will show you sometimes. Somebody will come up to you and, you know, you did this and I just want to say thank you. Or this happened and I just want to say thank you. We never know what it is that's going to be just that little thing that people need. And you know what? We won't know many of them until we get to heaven. And God says, here's your, here's your reward for this action. Here's your, but God, I didn't do anything, but I was just kind to them. And goes, yes, <laughs> you were kind to them. And it changed, it changed everything for them because you did it through me. And most of the things we're going to be rewarded with are going to be those things that we're not even aware of what we've done. It's just a little thing here, a little thing here, a little thing here. And we're never going to be quite aware of how big a deal it made in somebody's life. And I challenge you, you know, as you're going through the next couple of days, think about your own walk with God. What are some of those points where somebody did just something small? Maybe they don't even recognize that they did it, but it meant everything to you. And to you it was very important, but it was really just a small, small item. You know, they gave you a ride to the store or something, a really big deal here in Chloride. Getting a ride to, into town can be a really big deal for people in this town. And you know, if you're going to town already and taking somebody with you, it's really not that big a deal. Or it shouldn't be. And you might be, changing their life by that, by that ride. And I know that's far-fetched, but it, it could do something that really could change their life because just the kindness shown to them. And they're going, well, you know, 
that person was a Christian. They did talk to me about being a Christian a little bit or talk to me about God. You know, I had to endure that <laughs> or it changed my life. But, you know, the little things we do, the little things we do are going to be where the greatest rewards come. Not the times we stand up in front of a large crowd and preach the gospel. Not the times we go knock on doors, you know, even though that can be a good time. But just some of the little simple things we do to touch people's lives. Never underestimate what you're ser- how you're serving God. Just a small cup of water is all that may be the greatest blessing to, to a dying, thirsty person. A cup of water is a, is a gold nugget. Uh, you know, reading, reading the book uh, about the guy that ran the orphanages, how he just had people show up with him. You know, the baker saying, I was just impressed to make a whole bunch of these breads and give them to you. Didn't cost the baker a whole lot to bake a few extra loaves of bread, but it filled the orphans' bellies. <laughs> and, you know, and I, forget, I would tell, say that those orphans were really, really glad. You know, he's just thinking, you know, I'm just giving a few loaves of bread away. Yeah. And that's usually what we look at. It. The greatest blessings are going to be those times when it's just a few loaves. Nothing, nothing big, nothing expensive, just a little, little extra that I had, and we give it to somebody. And God turns it around and makes it a great blessing. In the pioneer days, giving water to the guys in the desert, it was going, if you give somebody a free glass of water, it was a gift, but it was going for a dollar to a hundred dollars for a cup of water mm-hmm. to the uh, supply and demand of the starving. A lot of people died. They didn't have the dollar or a hundred dollars. They died. But uh, out of charity, a lot of people would give water to the stranded uh, caravans of people, settlers coming through. Christians would come out and give water to them, so that was a yeah. good thing. Well, people, people have been kind, you know, and little kindnesses can make a big difference. Little, just little things. You never know what little thing that you do may be a huge thing in somebody's life. life you know? Verse 25, and you profane wicked princes of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown, this shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it to him. He now is turning his attention to the princes and the kings, that they have been wicked. And he uses profane wicked princes. Not just wicked, but you know, very evil. And we've seen this, if you read the, through the books of Kings and, and Chronicles, so many of these kings were wicked kings. They brought in idolatry worship and idols and far away from God, they moved the people. And God said, I've had enough. You kings and princes, I'm going to humble you. You think you're special, I'm going to humble you. And I'm going to raise up the, the weak, the low. And God will do this to people. When they get too high and mighty in their pride, they will be humbled. And we see it all through the scriptures, God humbling the, the individuals. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be humbled. He's going to come in one day and say, this is my Babylon, which I have cre- created. And God, because you fool, and he, and he humbles him for seven years. He gives him the mind of a beast and goes around for seven years and finally comes out humbled man ready to to receive God and God will do this with us if we think too highly of ourselves he'll make sure we fall flat on our face 
if we think we're, some, we're God's gift to, to the church or to the Christian people or to other people, he'll say, okay, let's see how far you can get if my hand is pulled away from you for just a moment. As we go stumbling and splattering all over the place and, and ruining, you know, thinking that we're ruining our, rep, our reputation in front of people because we forget that it's a gift of grace as well. And God says, okay, are you ready to humble yourself? Are you ready to seek forgiveness now? Let's, let's bring you back. God will never let flesh stand in front of him. And if it's in the church, he will bring it down because he's not going to let it stand. It all has to be him. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Our job is real simple. We lift up Jesus so that people will be drawn to Jesus. Not to how good a song program we can put together, not, not how good we can preach the message, not how good we can be friendly to one another. It's all about Jesus being lifted up. Now the other parts can be good as long as we're focusing on Christ in the process. But I have been to churches that have really high-powered praise and worship teams, but no anointing from God. It's just a bunch of people singing very well and playing instruments very well, but you don't sense God in it at all. I've heard speakers who are really powerful speakers, good speakers, but there's no life in their message. There's no, has God given you anything new? And this is the wonderful thing about getting into the word. And God lifts up parts of the word and says, this is for you today. This is your truth today. This is what I want you to pay attention to. And I've shared with you, I can't tell you how many times I've been reading through my daily reading and all of a sudden a verse will jump off the page of the book and it's like, I've never seen this before, I'm going to have to think about this one all day long. And it's that fresh word that God gives. When I start tearing apart a verse and all of a sudden some new truth gets revealed, or a deeper truth gets revealed, and I get to meditate on that truth, that statement, and go, God, you are so wonderful. You have a book that's alive and living, and no matter how many times I read it, there's something new in there and something new and fresh because it is God's very word spoken. And it will have this conversation with us to say, I want you to follow me. And it says in verse uh, 26, remove the diadem and take off the crown and it shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. So it says, take down these kings, take down these rulers, make them know what it means to be like everybody else. There's nothing special about them. And raise up the low. And then in verse 27, we read, I will overturn, overturn, overturn. You think God wants us to pay attention here? You know, he's going to overturn something. <laughs> and what's he going to overturn? Everything. The, king, the kings and the, and the low, he's going to make them, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is and I will give it to him. This is the prophecy of Jesus when Jesus comes and takes the crown and the authority forever. And this is where Jesus will come at the very end of days and he will be king of kings, lord of lords. He will rule for the rest of eternity. And as king in, in a place where he is going to be seen in Jerusalem. We're going to end here. I don't want to try to... That's the land of nativity, right? Huh? Jerusalem is the land of nativity. Well, that's where he was born in Bethlehem, yeah. Oh, Bethlehem. That's yeah. the hometown. So, 
All right, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to go with us as we go about our business or the rest of the day and the rest of this week. We ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, give us opportunities just to minister and give us the hear, ears to hear your word and your speak, that we will speak what you would have us to say in your son's name. Amen.